0: Hi folks, I hope you're all doing really well. It's James here. Just to let you know that this is the full, unedited interview with Johnny Zyamek. If you're looking for the edited version of this interview, have a look either below or above this episode. Also, we just want to thank everyone who has followed, subscribed, rated and reviewed. You're all amazing. Thank you so much. And if anyone else hasn't done that yet, please do, because as I've said before, it helps us grow. So we'd really appreciate it. Okay, thank you so much. Bye. Welcome to The Hut Near the Bog, the podcast where a life and business coach and a philosopher discuss various aspects of human existence by drawing on the wisdom of Ireland, as well as their own expertise and life experiences. In this full, unedited interview, Johnny Zyamek discusses his background as a child actor photographer and globetrotter. We hear about his Irish roots and his founding of the Euston Gales. He also tells us of his experience of 9-11 and the profound implications this had for his life. In the final part, Johnny shares the wisdom that we can take from his remarkable story. Johnny, thank you so much for coming on the hut near the bog.
1: Thanks James, really happy to be here and appreciate you having me on.
0: So Johnny, can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. So I guess I could start at the beginning. Uh, I was born in San Francisco, California, but moved to New York when I was two and was raised there in the New York City area in New York and then moved to northern New Jersey about 10 minutes from Manhattan when I was 11. So I was around the New York City area for the uh, the vast majority of my my uh, upbringing, if you will. When, uh, when I got to the, well, I guess this is sort of an important point, I was raised as a uh, I was actually working, I've been working since the age of five. I was a child actor you know, doing television commercials and films and TV shows and all that stuff. So that was, it's funny when I, I look at people now and I think, Oh, you know, we've been working for several years, but I've been working since, you know, since I was five, you know? So uh, it, it was a really interesting sort of upbringing and in, in getting to work with some, some of the best people in, in their, in their field. And, it gave me a very interesting sort of outlook on life. But then I got to the point where I was tired of missing school and tired of missing my ball games and, and, and things like that. And I walked away from that when I was 14. So again, by the age of 14, I had already had a full career. I, uh, I At that point, I really concentrated on uh, my studies and, and, uh, and my athletics and was able to go to college, actually, in uh, played American football and lacrosse in college. I went to Marietta College in Ohio. Went out there at a at a good run and and it this sort of uh, started me on the, this journey of of I guess you could say thinking differently and, and not just trying to be uh, the robot that I think a lot of us are sort of trained to be and I don't mean that in a, in a disrespectful way to to the vast majority out there but I think when, when you look at sort of the way we're trained and the way we're educated it is like to be this this robot you know you're going to go into this career you're going to work from nine to five you're going to do all these things. And that never made any sense to me. It just really didn't. So when I was in college, I I, I just sort of reached my wits end. I had an injury. I broke my arm in a car accident and I I couldn't play football for a year. And I was looking around like, what am I going to do? And I, uh, I went and I studied abroad. I went and lived in Spain for like six months and it was probably the greatest experience of, of many great experiences in my life. It really set me on such a, such a, Better path, uh, in my opinion, learn just how to live, in my opinion, in a much better way. And uh, uh, the Spanish have this thing where it's, they say, you Americans, you 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 live to work. It's all you care about is work. Over here, we work to live. You know, we have got to got to pay our bills. We understand that, but life is a heck of a lot more important to enjoy and to. to you know, we're not going to be here forever, right? And that was such a fundamental change into how I I viewed things. It was one of the greatest things that that I was able to take in from that period of time. So from there, went back, graduated college and was just sort of kind of lost for a little bit. I'd say like I had a job. I was living back in New Jersey, working in New York city and, and, and doing all these things. But, uh, I got into through my father, I, I got into photography. Uh, my father had been a photographer when he was younger, and he bought me a camera, and we, uh, we started doing all these events around
0: New York City. You've, really, you've, uh, you've lived life anyway. There's no doubt about that. Uh, look, uh, perhaps I'm, I'm interested to find out, you're Irish-American. Um, you're, 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 I believe that your surname is uh, of Polish origin. That's is correct. that correct? So I'm wondering about how, where the Irish-American comes into that.
1: Well, the the vast majority of my heritage, actually, is Irish. My grandfather was Polish. His parents came from Krakow. My, uh, so, but my father's mother, my paternal mother was, uh, my paternal grandmother, I should say, was uh, of Irish descent. Her family came to, her family landed in San Francisco around the famine time. They left Ireland during the famine time and and landed in San Francisco in the the 1850s during the whole gold rush and, and all of that. In fact, I have a, a great-granduncle, a guy named uh, John Barry Curtin, who he passed long before I was born, but he was a senator in the state of California, and in 1913, he led California to unanimously recognize Ireland as a free state, and that was all a, a bill put forward by my great-granduncle J.B. Curtin. So I I was aware of that through my dad, and just he, he really kind of instilled this this uh, pride, if you will, even though he, he was. His father was Polish. He, he really relayed a lot more of the, the Irish side to me on that. And I, I guess I've always related from that side. And then on my mom's side, uh, the entire family, actually, the, the majority of the family actually were Irish from Monaghan and Donegal. And in the late 1800s, early 1900s, just because times were rough, they moved to Glasgow. And they were in Glasgow for one generation and then moved to New York. So my grandmother was actually born in Glasgow, but as an infant, they they uh, they moved to New York. So, interestingly enough, they would my grandmother probably would have said she was more Scottish. So I grew up thinking, ah, oh, we're, we're Scottish, but that we were actually like refugees more than anything, right? Just like so many other Irish who left due to the, the tough times and the, the discrimination and the food troubles and, and what have you, they they went over to wherever they went, right? These, my family ended up in Scotland and then New York and so many people just spread out. And that's why the, the Irish diaspora is so, so far and wide, right? But so I've had this understanding though from both sides of my family about uh, my Irish heritage and, and it's always meant a great deal to me.
0: Absolutely. And I suppose just to follow on from that or to build upon, who would you say is the most significant influence on your sense of Irishness?
1: So I would say from my family, certainly start with my father, like a, like I mentioned earlier, but then I have a, a great uncle named Joe McGee. He's about 85 years old, still living back in New Jersey now, and uh, he, he's the one who's really just reminded me for all these years. Like, don't get lost in this Scottish talk. We're Irish, you know. So it uh, it was a really important thing to him. His uh, his father's people. His his father actually came from a town called Manor in uh, in Donegal, Manor Cunningham, and. It's it. Here's again an interesting story to kind of you know beat you over the head with who we are and and where we came from. He, uh, my my great grandfather, who was alive when I was born, he, he passed when I was about two years of age. He he lied about his age at sixteen to join the Great War, the World War One, and by coincidence, he gets put on the front line with all these other Irish Catholics, you know, in uh, some godforsaken desert in Africa. Because unfortunately, it's kind of the way they were treated, right? They were treated like. Like fodder, and you know what though they fought, they fought through and they made it through and, and uh, it toughened them up, and they passed it on through the generations and and when he was able to move to New York, he had a great career, raised a great family and and uh, we're, you know we're very strong
0: absolutely you' have a very interesting uh, family background and it's uh, fascinating to, to hear all about it. And I know that you are significantly, you're very heavily involved in the GA, and I believe in more than one club in in the US. Uh, I'm just wondering how did you how did that come about? How did you become so heavily involved in the GA?
1: So I was very familiar with the sport growing up in New York. My little brother actually played when we were kids, but I never did. I, I was a three sport athlete growing up so I never really had time to take on a fourth at that time when I moved over to Korea there was a I played in a, a soccer league a Sunday league and all the teams would basically you know you'd go out on the lash after the matches and it was a whole lot of fun right but I was paling around with two of the other clubs which were uh, were both Irish teams the St. Patrick's and uh, Celtic were the two of the names I was playing on a British team at the time and these guys were like, "Yeah, hey, we're heading down to Thailand to to play in the Asian Gaelic games for Gaelic football. I said, Gaelic football? Like Irish football? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're heading down. I was like, you guys play that here? They're like, yeah, we just started a club. I was like, well, I want to play. They're like, well, we're we're heading to the Asians now. You know, we're leaving next week, but uh, why don't you come train with us when we, we start up again in January? I was like, absolutely, I'm in. And just from there, I mean, I took to it like a duck to water. I just it kind of was the the perfect match for all the the things that i bring just the, the toughness and the, the physicality and the the ability to run and catch and and uh, and kick it was all these things that i actually was really good at uh, but when you're looking at american football which is you're kind of in a silo you know you're you're very good at this or you're very good at that right or baseball you, you that hand eye coordination and, and and such or wrestling just as a really physical sport and and, and such and actually played lacrosse pretty extensively at a uh, decent level when I got older but again it's it's very different right but you kind of put it all into one and there's Gaelic football so I trained like a lunatic I lost uh, 40 pounds or about uh what's it about 20 or 15 18 kilos uh so yeah trained our butts off in the in, if you don't know if you've ever been to Korea but it's it it's a a Spartan existence when it comes to training for a sport like this you 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 don't train on grass you train on these like hard sandy pitches and so if you go down like you're losing skin you know every time so I've trained like lunatics and I made the senior panel and we went down to Hong Kong and kicked the living crap out of everyone and we won the the Derek Brady cup for the the senior championship for the Asian Gaelic Games so that was my introduction to Gaelic football and from there, I mean, we played in the final. It was the coolest thing. We get we get led out by this Piper Brigade, and we're meeting the the Irish ambassador to China and the Irish special consulate to Hong Kong, and all these all these dignitaries, you know. And then we went and played this team from Tokyo and beat them four eleven to three one, and it was just amazing. And uh, from there on out, I was I was hooked. I moved to Los Angeles shortly after that, after two and a half years in, in Korea. And there was a club there called the, uh, the Wild Geese and yeah, started playing with them and became the chairman of that club after after a few years. And and it was it was a wonderful experience, though, so when I moved to Houston, when we decided to move to Houston back in 2009 during the financial crisis, the there was no club. So I just set it as a goal. Like all right, I'm going to build a club. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to get this going. I know it can. I know it's possible. I know I can do this. And I set about, and it took me over two years to to get it going. And the only responses I was getting, I had things up on. Uh, I think the website was called IrishAbroad.com. So I had the I had things up on this site and a few other sites. And this is very at the early stages of Facebook. So you really weren't using Facebook for for too many things at that point. And the only responses I was getting at that point were like Nigerian people going, Hey, hey, send me money for, you know, my uncle Olafemi," all this nonsense scamming, you know? And, you know, and then, but then in a one week time, one week span, I had two responses that looked legit. One was a guy named Mike Murphy from Mayo and another guy was uh, Philly Larkin from your dear old Tipperary from MoneyGall. So we all got together and there were a few other guys who joined us and, I had the experience running a club out in California and, and uh, Philly had started a club over in uh, the Middle East and had also folded a club in the Middle East, but had a pretty good understanding of the financial side of, of the clubs and how they worked. And Mike had actually run a, a soccer club here in Houston. He had been here for a while and he had a lot of the contacts with pubs and, and, and different people who, who could kind of help us to get it going. And from there, we just, we ran with it. And we got it going and uh, we played our first matches. We founded the club in late eleven and played our first matches in uh, early two thousand twelve. And from there, as they say it's history. This is our ninth year. And it's been a great run. We now are we, we are now the largest club in the Southwest Division, the the Houston Gales. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the GA in America, there's, there's several divisions throughout. We play in the Southwest Division, which geographically is probably 10 times the size of Ireland. And I'm not exaggerating on that. It goes all the way from New Orleans, uh, but we're, we're doing great. We're, we're actually predominantly American now or non-Irish just by, by virtue of who we have and what we've had to do in order to keep it going. And in order to be sustainable, our belief is you have to get the locals into this. If you don't, then you're going to be like so many other clubs throughout the world that they have a good run. Then everybody leaves or they get old and and then they're dead. You know, I don't mean the people, but the club, right?
0: Mm.
1: We didn't want that. We want this to be around for for the long haul. We want this to be something that we can be proud of when we're older, that our kids are going to want to play in, that when people come to town, they're going to say, right, there's a football club there. Or or they're looking at cities to move to. They can look at Houston and say, there's a football club there. I know there's a community. I could step right in. Because ultimately, James, I think that's kind of what the GAA or, or, or rugby or, or a lot of other sports are, right? It's it's a way that you can step right into a community, a community that you can meet a lot of people, and, and you know that no matter what, no matter what your political affiliation or, or, or whatever it is, someone's going to have a, they're going to have a set of values that you subscribe to, and whether it's the sport or, or just the heritage or, or whatever it may be, you're going to be able to step right in, and the GAA has been great for that for me. And uh, you know, I'm proud to proud to be playing my part, if you will.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I I hear you have a great chairman there presently.
1: He's doing all right there, uh, young Andrew. <laughs> 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 oh no, Andrew's doing a great job. It's a, a super trying year, obviously, and uh, he uh, he stepped up, and in, in, in spite of all this, we've been able to we landed a huge sponsor, we in Guinness. We we've done a great amount of things in order to to get the public going. And then of course, COVID shut us down. So it looks like our season is going to be shut down. Uh, We'll be lucky to get in a match or two come December, but Andrew's done a heck of a job just carrying it on and really putting his own stamp on things. And in a very trying year, he's doing a wonderful job.
0: Absolutely. And actually that just brings a question to mind. So how, what are the challenges that COVID have presented to your GAA club?
1: well you can start with that we're we're financially very sound right so we can we can weather a storm we we were very smart about how we spent our money we we've had some very generous sponsors over the years and we've quite frankly been frugal we we haven't really wasted our money and a lot of clubs will just blow their money on this and that we've we've been very smart about about this and I like the idea of preparing for a rainy day. Well, that rainy day came this year in the form of a hurricane, tornado, pandemic. God only knows what else. its It's been a crazy year. So what we've been able to do now or how this has impacted us is, hey, we, we're not able to play, right? So you have to keep people interested somehow, some way. I think what we're, we've been very good at, at trying to do things that will keep people active, whether it was at first we were sending out workouts. We would we, have workouts that you could do and send them out. Hey, do this workout; it'll be good for you. We we've had events like we did a fundraiser for our, our local, uh, the local black community. Obviously, with everything that's been going on here in America, and I'm sure you're watching the news. We wanted to do our part to to participate and just show our support for for another community. And if you look at the, the black community, the way they they've had to deal with things over the years, well, you don't have to think that far back to the way the Irish were treated so many years ago, right? Because it really wasn't that long ago, the way the Irish were treated as second-class citizens, and uh, I think a lot of us can can look at that and we can relate and say, right, we we can do our part and and try and help. So, what we did is we did a running fundraiser where we all ran on our own, and we raised about two thousand uh, dollars. Gave it to the local uh, a local chapter of what's called the Urban League, which directly impacts people in the community in helping out with housing and and uh, youth programs and things of this nature. So we were very proud to do that, be able to help out. So it's it's things like this, but ultimately you want to be able to play some football. Ultimately you want to be able to, to train. And and if nothing else, uh, to me, this is a paramount to what the club is. It, it's it's the community, right? And hey, I'm fortunate to still be able to play at 44 years of age and, and I feel great and, and I love it and blah, 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 but we're not going to be able to play forever. But the club, the community that's the most important part that that should be here long beyond our ability our our days of playing, right? That way we can step back in and say, Hey, these are our people. This is what we have. So that's been tough. It's been tough because you can't get together. You you can't see people. And, and I think you you have to really, and we've been been very good at this, like checking in with people, just to say, Hey, what's going on? Making sure everyone's all right. You know, you you worry about people and, and sort of their levels of, of, not just physical fitness, because you can get that back, but their mental fitness, like how are they doing mentally right now? Because it, it's such an isolated time. So the the impact on our club, is, I'm sure it's been similar to a lot of other clubs and, and not just clubs, but everything else in, in our, in our world right now. But I think we're going to weather this storm quite well and come out of it. And people are just going to be raring to go. There's talks about maybe hopefully come, uh, come October or November being able to get out and, do uh do our public matches and we do have a, a what we do here just because we're so spread out, there's only four clubs in the state of Texas. And the state of Texas is probably a quarter of the size of Western Europe, right? I mean it's just physically massive, right? So our our closest match, we'd have to drive two and a half hours. And then other would be about three and a half, another one would be about four and a half, five hours. Those are our our, our three sister clubs, if you will, here in Texas in Austin, San Antonio, and Dallas. But we want to play more football than that. So we do a pub league where we have four teams. It's co-ed and we you kind of have different sets of rules for the female players and the male players, but just to keep it interesting. Right. And it's been very successful this year. It probably was, was fixing to be our, our most successful year yet with the pub league. Our turnout was great. We probably had upwards of 80 to a hundred players active in the pub league. But then it all got shut down. So I think when we come through this, we're going to be in a great place. Though I really do. I think there's a lot of people that have, have are, are itching to get back out there, and and ultimately, we as a club, we're going to be fine. We're going to be great. We'll we'll be stronger for this.
0: That that's that's excellent, and it's great to hear some positivity in what is an overwhelmingly not non-positive time. So. And I've been hearing all about the Houston Gales and I think you're doing, I think it's amazing what you've done out there. So congratulations. Uh, I'm just wondering then for someone who has a rich Irish heritage and someone who has been so involved, heavily involved in the the GA in in the US in particular and abroad. um, I'm just wondering how important do you think the GA is for the global Irish community?
1: You know, I think the GA, whether you're an athlete or you're not, it's Again, getting back to that that word I used before, community, I think if you go to a city, again, whether you're a player or you're not a player, it doesn't really matter, and you know there's a club there, that's the first call you should make. That's the first email you should send is to that club, because automatically you're stepping into a community. And for the Irish and and, and people like me who, who, who are into it, that is the first thing we do, and you know that there's going to be people of a similar mindset. Again, it doesn't matter their political affiliation. It doesn't matter what they do for a job. You have this thing in common and it, whether it's, Hey, we're going to be all meeting up at this pub to, to have a laugh or, or, Hey, we're all going to a ball game or, or whatever it may be. We're all going on a fishing trip. And we, we name the, name the event, but you step into a community, you step into a group. And for that, I think it's paramount to, to all of it. Right. I think it's, to have a GAA club, and we're fortunate here in the U.S. that there's roughly 150 to 200 clubs, somewhere in that. It fluctuates every year. But most of the major cities would have at least one club. So we're very fortunate that we can. And if we if we all decide, hey, if my family, if we decide we're going to move to Atlanta, Georgia, or we're going to move to Kansas City or Phoenix, Arizona, well, there's clubs there, right? And And mm-hmm. that's the first call I'm making, no doubt about it, you know? So it, it's, I think it's super important. I think it's super important to uh, the culture. I think it's super important to the identity. I think it's super important to just the, the sense of belonging in that community. The, the GA really is, is the glue, in my opinion, of, uh, of the Irish community, especially abroad.
0: Absolutely, Johnny. I would one hundred percent agree with you. And look, you've lived such a fascinating life. And another fascinating aspect about your life is that you were actually present at and documented nine eleven. Could you tell us a bit about that?
1: Sure. So, nineteen years ago, I was working as a photographer and and building my own business. I was, I, kind of done the uh, burn the boats method. I, I completely stopped teaching I, I was purely going hell-bent on, on making it as a photographer and ironically today's date, September the 7th I was at this uh, I was at the MTV Music Awards that were held on September the 6th into the 7th right and it was my big break so to speak I uh, I had uh, I snuck into the MTV Music Awards and got all these photos and just kind of kicked some serious butt one thing led to another got invited to some private party and it was like Jennifer Lopez's private party. I did celebrity photography in case people are trying to figure out, I should have mentioned that earlier. I was a celebrity photographer for about 10 years and this was fairly close to the beginning of that. So I, when I was traveling the world, a lot of times it was to go to these major events and take photos of celebrities and then sell them to these different magazines all over the world. Right. And so on that night, I, just kicked some serious ass. I mean, I, I, I really had it big. The following morning, I was at People Magazine and uh, a, an old teammate of mine, a guy named Franny Fitzgerald, was an editor at the magazine and they took over 50 of my photos, meaning I was going to make a massive payday because these were mostly exclusive photos and the exclusivity is what drives the price. So, this was the break, right? This is what I had put it all on the line for. This is what I had maxed out every credit card for. And, and and this is what I, I needed to continue if you will. So I was at a shoot on the night of September the 10th and it was pissing rain and it just wasn't, it wasn't a good night, but I, uh, I go back to Jersey and my, my friend wakes me up. He woke me up and he's like, Hey, something happened. And we were sitting there and we're, we're watching as the second plane hit. And, holy shit you know so got up to my uh i got to my car and my car had been parked on the side of the street for for a month because i had had a blown water pump so i literally had like three gallon i couldn't drive the car like i was gonna seize the engine but i said screw it let me seize the engine if that means i can get to where i could because you couldn't get into the city i threw my bike in the trunk of the car and i uh had like three gallons of water and and i would drive for like five minutes pull over pour the water in the radiator finally got to a point where he you couldn't get anywhere closer. So I just parked the car on the side of the road and rode my bike uh, to the George Washington bridge. I grew up like 10 minutes from the bridge and they're really cool. They had a, they had built a barricade and I took my bike and I threw it over the barricade and the climbed it over and I rode across the bridge and took these photos from the bridge and you could see the smoke and it, it was just insanity. Right. So I got into the city and long story short, rode all the way down and, both the towers, uh, the first two towers, had collapsed at that point, and I had my camera. I was shooting film, and got down to pretty close to Ground Zero, and I was about maybe three blocks away, or five blocks away, I should say, from uh, from Tower Seven. And Tower Seven collapsed. I was so close; I could see the could see the fire on the lower levels, and you, you could smell it. You could smell the burning, and it was just insanity, right? And people covered in dust, and it was—it was honestly like, I mean, it was the early, you know, mid-September, but it was like it was snowing, and it was so much powder, like the pulverized cement, concrete, whatever, and drywall, and, and what have you. So it was literally like it was snowing in the city, and then the ground started shaking, and there's firemen running, and cops, and everybody's running, and I just stood there taking photos, and I got covered and up in all the yuck, and uh Tower Seven collapsed, and I just, I got enveloped in all the smoke and, and everything. It was pretty crazy. Uh, so continued to photograph all that night. I mean, I was just covered in yuck, right? Just filthy. And just shot 13 rolls of film between the 11th and then the, the 12th. At, on the 12th, I went down bright and early. Actually, on the night of the 11th, I, I stayed at the Chelsea Hotel, which any, any rock music fans would recognize the Chelsea Hotel. Bob Dylan lived there. A lot of other uh, big-time musicians that lived there. But my agent actually was living there, and I stayed with her that night. Then in the morning, I was at Ground Zero, and I caught probably the best photo that I've ever taken in my life. There was a nun, a Catholic nun who was at Ground Zero, and I was at Ground Zero. I touched the Touch Towers 1 and 2. I'm right there. And people would ask me, what are you doing here? I was like, well, I'm a photographer. Who, who let you down here? The Red Cross guys. Okay, you're with the Red Cross? They let me down here. So I didn't actually say I was with the Red Cross, but uh I, I wanted to get down there. So this nun walks up, and it was it was just like a gift from God, you know, like she's there and she's got her hands up and she's praying over the over the wreckage. And I was just photographing it and photographing, photographing, and it, it was very powerful, like it gives me chills thinking about it right now. It was an insane time. You never knew what was gonna happen next, right? Like all these things had happened. But we, we didn't know like, were, were there more coming? Were, were, were there bombs on the ground? We we had no idea. And the city, I, I don't know if you've been there or, or uh, I will assume that a lot of your audience has been there, but the city is always very loud. It's, it's an extremely loud, extremely fast place. And to grow up there, you just get used to it. That's just life. you know Everything's loud. Everything's fast. Everything's just in your face. It was so quiet that day. After... After the third tower collapsed, after Tower 7 collapsed, it was just so quiet. People were in a daze, you know, obviously, right? Understandably so. And it, w- it was very interesting to, to be a part of it and just sort of experience it and to photograph it. And just for, for the future generations so they can potentially understand. It uh, It really, I don't, I don't really know how to say it except that I'm glad I was there. I think it was sort of our generation's Pearl Harbor. Um, I, I attempted to volunteer, but just to tell you kind of the outpouring of support from people around, I attempted to volunteer. I attempted to give blood and they weren't taking any more volunteers and they wouldn't take any more blood. They had so many people lined up to give blood. They just, they didn't have any more capacity. And that was, it's kind of like the, from the Phoenix, you know, from the, the phoenix will rise from the ashes, right? It's like, well, the the tower has collapsed, but you saw the best side of people on that day and on those days that followed, because people just did everything they could to help their neighbors and and just whether it's giving them a bottle of water or, or just giving them a meal or, or or helping them out, you know, giving giving them a place to stay, just just helping people out. You you really did get to see the best side of people in spite of the the nastiness that occurred.
0: You know, it's, it's an amazing, amazing story. And it's, I, I just, I can only imagine how surreal it was to be there and the experience. I—I Just a question that's come to mind, I suppose. How do you think that event has shaped America? It's been nearly 20 years, 19 years this week, but how do you think it's come to shape America today?
1: In my opinion, not in a good way. I think that we've been, We've been this war machine since, and we got into two kind of never-ending wars, and we've kind of villainized a lot of people that that don't deserve it. And I think it's in anything else. If anything else, it, it's made our world more aware of certain things, but it's made our country so much more militant. And not to say that America was. I think America's been for a long time, quite a militant country in terms of our, our actions overseas. But it, it made it, I think it made it even worse. Uh, part of it, okay, it's understandable. We got to defend ourselves. But another part of it, we've, we've now spent trillions upon trillions of dollars. We've, we've destroyed countries. We've, we've destroyed people in our own country. And we've made it a lot more difficult for, for a lot of people around the world, and I'd like to see things get back to really a more peaceful uh, peaceful way, and I'd like to see us get out of the places that we're in. But I think that's a different conversation for a different time. I, I don't feel like we're better off because of it. I think we're I think we're worse off because of it.
0: Very interesting to hear. And I'm wondering then, in particular, of your own personal experience, how do you think that that changed your worldview, that particular event, being there, experiencing it, experience, actually being there firsthand, seeing what happened, and then the subsequent events that happened afterwards, how how did that change you as a person, as an individual?
1: Well, it, that's actually a great question, James, because as I mentioned before, with the, the MTV Music Awards, I had caught my big break, so to speak, right? But then nine eleven occurred no one cared about some some party 3 4 days earlier right now if this had happened 2 3 weeks earlier i might have made a couple hundred thousand dollars like like no joke right but it changed my particular journey if you will in that as i had mentioned i had maxed out every credit card i had no income outside of what i was doing in photography i was going i had full on jumped in both fires burned the boats go for you know go for broke right and I uh, I needed a way out. I needed a I needed something. I needed something quick. So I had looked at some some opportunities overseas online, and I, long story short, I had uh, had offers in China, Korea, and Japan to to go and teach. I, while I was doing my photography for for those those years back in, uh, in New York and New Jersey, I was teaching. I was a high school teacher in Patterson, New Jersey and i I took a job in Korea, so two weeks after nine eleven I was on a plane to South Korea and stayed there for the next two years and three months teaching English. so it changed my journey i mean if you could almost say that indirectly because it 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 got me to have to go to somewhere else it had got me to have to go make a change, but indirectly, it almost got me to playing Gaelic football as odd as that sounds right because i i I go to Korea teach playing soccer again for the first time since I was 11 years old. And then I met these guys like uh, Kevin Tobin, a guy from Dublin who who, dear friend of mine for almost 20 years now, he founded that club in, in Seoul uh, with several other guys, but you just kind of the, the, the wildness of life and the, the, the beauty of life. You take this terrible event and it turns into this thing that's been one of the biggest things of my my adulthood right is gaelic football and and it wouldn't have happened it may not have happened if i hadn't gone to korea Mm. you know you look at what gaelic football has meant to me and and it all kind of boils down to coming back to that that day that that 9-11 and what it forced my hand to do you know what what cards could i play well this is a card that i could play and i went to korea and and kind of never looked back and my plan for all my life was you know travel do all these things but I was going to raise my family in the New York city area. I haven't lived there since. There you go. I've been gone, I've been gone out of there for almost night, almost 19 years to the day. I've been out of there, but I wouldn't trade a minute of it. You know, through, through again, through the GAA, not just the GA, but through, through these life experiences, like I've learned multiple languages. I've traveled to 30 countries. I've Again, I started playing Gaelic and uh, the, the journey that, that I've been able, that I've been on with the Gaelic. I mean, I met my wife through Gaelic. I, I've traveled to countries all over the world, whether it's Thailand. I I went back with my old club in uh, November of 18. I went uh, with my old club, the soul Gales and went and played in the Asian Gaelic games again. And just had a phenomenal time, you know, traveled down there. It took 30 hours from the day I left, from the moment I left 30 hours to get there. And I was on the ground for three days, played a two day football tournament on the lash every night as you do. <laughs> and then, uh, and then flew back and, and got back Monday morning at 7am and went to work. You know, it's just like these exciting experiences are like in February, I traveled with my, my club from California, my old club in California. They they had sent out a message last October, like, Hey, anybody up for, for going to play in the Party in Kerry in February. I said to my wife, I was like, if I don't do this now, like I'm never going to do it. Right. So went over to, uh, trained like a lunatic, got myself fit as can be, and went over and played in the Pau Shea in February, and we won. We won the tournament.
0: Congratulations! Like,
1: you know, we won the juniors and cheers. It was you know so again getting back to like how that day impacted me. It was an awful day, and you know about what four thousand people in my in my city got killed. Right, something for three thousand in my city and like thirty five hundred, four thousand overall got killed. Awful, awful but the city rebuilt, the city looks really good. Uh, the people are, you know, we're, we're resilient people. We, we've, you know, we got on with it, right. We, uh, we don't forget, but we got on with it. And for me personally, it, it really, it, it accelerated my journey to, to even higher, higher levels. And the, this journey that I continue to be on today. So yeah, again, I like to look at the positive and all sides and, and, I got to look at it that way too.
0: Absolutely and uh, it's a, a, an amazing journey. Um what is your wisdom Johnny? and what is your advice for people out there today?
1: I think that I, and I've just got back gotten back to following my own advice but you know I knew at a very young age sort of the 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 fragility and the the, the shorter the sort of shortness of life right and the, to me it meant like I need to do as much as I can and see as much as I can. Because life is so short, man. It is just so short. and There's, there's so much you can do. But if you're just going to sit at your at your house and you know, complain about what's going on and not do anything about it, you're not going to get anywhere in this world. And for me, I think that the journey and what we've been able to do, what I've been able to do uh, is just fascinating. And, and life just continues to fascinate me. For me, it's never been about the money. And I think this is the most important bit of wisdom that I'd like to pass on. Look, I'm not a millionaire. I'm not a millionaire by any stretch, but I've had a, a million experiences. And that to me is a hell of a lot more important than what my bank account looks like. So, you know, there's not too many people that I know who are living here in the States who can say that they've been able to travel and they've been able to experience all these great things. So I'm very fortunate in that way. Again, I don't come from some huge financial background, but I've been able to have life experiences that people would die for, uh, you know, not just the things I've talked about, but even just adding more like, you know, running with the bulls in Pamplona or, or just traveling to these crazy jungles in the middle of South America and, and talking with shaman and just like wild experiences that you just don't get on a daily basis. You know, you don't really hear about in school. I think people should really set their minds on, on the idea that it, it's, it's a bit unnerving to be able to travel but to do it will just enlighten you and expand your mind to, to places you, you never even knew existed. And, and what you learn from there, from those experiences, is a hell of a lot more than you could ever learn in some university class or a book. The, those life experiences, those travels. And if people put more of a focus on their experiences rather than the almighty chase for the dollar or the pound or whatever currency you happen to be under, I think their life would be that much richer. And there's a, there's a great quote from uh, an American musician named Jerry Garcia. He was with the band, The Grateful Dead. He passed away 25 years ago. But uh, there's a great quote. You do not merely want to be considered the best of the best. You want to be considered the only one who does what you do. And I don't know if I'm the only one who does this. I know plenty of people who travel. But I live my life like it's, it's my only life to live. And because I truly believe it is and uh, I hope people would, would if they can learn one thing from this it's man live your life we won't be here forever get the most out of it squeeze as much juice out of that as you can and, uh, and enjoy it while you go
0: Johnny thank you so much for coming on the hut near the bog
1: James I appreciate you having me thank you so much and uh, God bless I look forward to meeting you here when, uh, when all this nonsense ends
0: my mother mine, and my father
1: And she stepped away from me, and this she did say. It she